0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 51, The Battle on the Ice. The Battle on the Ice is alternatively named the Battle of Lake Papus as the battle took place on the surface of a frozen lake. The lake today sits on the border between the modern countries of Estonia and Russia. The area was inhabited by Balto-Finnic tribes during ancient times. This area of Europe is one of the last areas of Europe to modernise into a nation state remaining tribal in nature right up until the second millennium. The area was certainly inhabited before Balto-Finnic language speakers migrated to the area. Much like much of northern Europe, peoples migrated northwards into such lands as the modern country of Estonia after the recession of the ice sheets after the younger Dryas, a climatic event where average temperatures dramatically dropped for around a millennium, around 12,000 years ago. Traditional technological developments can be monitored after the original migration. Bone, stone and flint tools would be added to by ceramic ware production from the 5th millennium BCE onwards. Historians have found it difficult to pin down when the ancestors of modern Estonians first appeared in the region but it is certainly believed that they were definitely there by 3,000 years ago. It is also difficult to pinpoint how prominent land cultivation style agriculture was in the earlier years of settlement or how long it took for animal domestication to become commonplace. Time will tell as more discoveries are made in the region in the future. Certainly, by 3,000 years ago, we can see a culture of shipbuilding, warrior culture, and ceremonial burials as the Bronze Age reached the region. The Iron Age reached the region initially by imports of ironware and then smelting production in its own right. This would come at a similar time to the rising power of the Romans in the south of the continent. The significance of the rise of the Romans is that they would begin to document their knowledge and discoveries of other cultures of Europe from 2000 years ago. It appears that the settlements of the area that we refer to as Estonia during the classical age were small and are likely to have been part of a local county that was fortified and had a type of monarch or military dictator. A huge amount of speculation has been made about the information that was written by the Romans and in particular the historian called Tacitus who wrote a book called Germania which focused on the Germanic tribes of Northern Europe. In this book Tacitus mentions a peoples called the Aesti. We know that the Aesti were living around or beyond the Vistula Lagoon on the northern coast of mainland continental Europe and they may have been ancestral to the modern Estonians but whether they occupied the modern lands of Estonia or migrated into the lands of Estonia is questionable. There are arguments and counter-arguments both for and against these points due to the inconclusiveness and ambiguities of the connections between classical and modern cultures in the region. The Livonian Order For us to understand the Livonian Order, we need to take a closer look at the wider cultures of Europe in the centuries leading up to the 12th century. It would be the Romans from the turn of the 5th century who would promote Christianity in Europe, a religion that had previously faced persecutions within the Roman Empire. Surrounding cultures would also begin to embrace Christianity in order to develop secure relationships with their neighbours. A good example of this would be the Franks under King Clovis at the end of the 5th century. The Christianisation of cultures was also thanks to the bishoprics that had been established in the lands of the Roman Empire that remained after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Previously, the Christianized cultures had pagan belief systems, much like the Franks and even the Romans. As the Franks expanded eastwards across the continent into Central Europe, the Christian Church would travel eastwards with it. But as this was happening, Christendom was evidently separating into the Roman Catholic Church centred on the papacy in Rome and the Eastern Orthodox Church, centred on the Byzantine capital city of Constantinople. The two churches would develop a rivalry with each other and would try to influence neighbouring cultures and nations to follow their own brand of Christianity. The Bulgarians are a good example of a nation that both the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox Christians attempted to influence. This competition to Christianize would affect many of the Slavic peoples of Eastern Europe also. With the early Bulgarian cultural mix of the South Slavs, the Bulgarians developed a Christian church which would empathise with the Slavic culture and the Slavic language. This is also the basis for the proliferation of the Cyrillic alphabet, which originated as an alphabet where Christian texts could be translated for the Slavic tongue. In the far north of the continent, the Vikings were becoming more civilised and with the expansion of Frankish culture into Central Europe came the origins of the modern country of Germany and the basis for the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire would be a coalition of Central European states under the direction of the King of Germany who was often granted the title of Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope in Rome. The title of Holy Roman Emperor was intended for the individual entrusted with the protection of the Roman Catholic Church. The presence of the Holy Roman Empire had a direct influence over the Scandinavian nations that evolved from Viking culture such as Denmark, Norway and Sweden, which would all become Christianized. With the Christianization of the Eastern Slavic state of Kievan Vros and its northern expansion, Eastern Orthodox Christianity was approaching the lands of the Balto Finnic peoples from their southeast. The West Slavs established a nation called Great Moravia, centered around the modern countries of Czech Republic and Slovakia. Originally, This would be where the origins of what would become the Cyrillic alphabet took place but Great Moravia would align itself with Rome and so the Slavic style of Christianity which was more closely associated with the Eastern Orthodox Church migrated to the South Slavs and the Bulgarians as mentioned earlier in the episode. The Great Moravian branch of Western influenced Christianity extended to another new Western Slavic state called Poland which now brought Roman Catholicism close to the balto Finnic peoples from their south-west. As we enter into the age of the Christian Crusades, which were military Roman Catholic missions to the Holy Land in the Levant from the end of the 11th century, the lands of the balto Finnic peoples that are equivalent to the modern Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, were surrounded by Christian nations. The Polish were to the southwest, the Swedes were to the west across the Baltic Sea, the Kiev and Rus were to their east. So it was only a matter of time before the Christianization of the Baltic states was going to become desirable. The Christian Crusades into the Holy Land began at the end of the eleventh century when high-ranked nobles and knights, mainly from Frankish territories, headed east to the lands of the Levant and the Holy City of Jerusalem on a military pilgrimage to reclaim lands once under Christian control through the Byzantines back from the various Islamic regimes that had been dominant in the area during the more recent centuries. The First Crusade was a success with Jerusalem being conquered and four crusader states being established in the Middle East. The establishment of monastic orders that aided the poor and sick and who aided the journey of Christian pilgrims, occurred soon afterwards. And these monastic orders attracted financial donations that made them very powerful, and in turn they were able to become militarily active. These orders were called the Knights Hospitaller and the Knights Templar. Over the course of the 12th century, those resident states in the Middle East began to strike back at the Crusader states and the tide slowly began to turn back against those crusader states. When the Ayyubid Sultan Saladin conquered Jerusalem in 1187, it sparked a Christian crusade against him, which we now call the Third Crusade. The Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, and many noble governors of German territories, travelled to the Middle East in support of the Third Crusade and another field hospital was set up there by German knights, which would also become wealthy and powerful, just like the hospital which led to the formation of the knights' hospitaller before them. Although this new monastic order was not on the same scale as the hospitallers, it still developed a high level of respect in the Crusader states, and attracted support until Pope Innocent III declared that the order should be militarised as the hospitallers' and the Templars had done before. They would be called the Order of Brothers of the German House of St Mary in Jerusalem, which is more commonly known as the Teutonic Order, which is a name based on the Latin language reference to their German origin. The members of the order are called the Teutonic Knights. The leader of the Teutonic Order was called the Grand Master, and the new Grand Master in 1209 was a man called Hermann von Sauzer. The situation in the Crusader States during the early 13th century became very grim, and the Teutonic Order relocated in order to help the Hungarians defend their territories against the Kipchaks. The Hungarians had been slowly Christianized as a nation from the 10th century, and the Kipchaks were a Turkic confederation of nomadic tribes to their east. In fact, the Teutonic Order was in high demand from Christian states all over Europe, combating their ideological enemies. The Teutons helped to resist the Kipchaks and expanded control into their territories. The Teutons felt that they deserved political control over the lands that they captured which was a huge concern for the Hungarians, who expelled the Teutons from their country. The Teutonic Order was then invited to become involved in tensions further north. In the decades leading up to this time, German traders had been travelling through the lands of the Livonians, who were settled in lands within the modern country of Latvia, an area where pagan belief systems dominated. German missions had also been sent to these lands in an attempt to convert the population of Livonia. The Livonians were not completely unfriendly to the Germans as the Livonians were pressurised by their Baltic and Rus neighbours and would have been grateful for a supportive ally. The Livonians were interested in diplomacy but not so much in conversion which angered the Pope Celestine III who called for a crusade to convert the Livonians. The Livonians still bravely resisted the Germans, even defeating them in military conflict. So a larger contingent of Germans established a power base at the city of Riga, which is the modern Latvian capital. An order called the Livonian Brothers of the Sword was established to apply further military pressure on the Livonian pagans. The Livonians had to submit to Christianity and the Livonian brothers of the Sword established a territory not too dissimilar to the modern country of Latvia in location and size. The Sword brothers, led by their master Folkwin von Naumburg to Winterstetten, now occupied that area surrounded by hostility from the tribes of Estonia to its north and the tribes of Lithuania to its south, as well as the Reus principalities to their east. While the Sword Brothers were attempting to keep their new Christian state alive, the Teutonic Knights had been summoned to the Polish Duchy of Masovia to defend its borders against Prussian pagan tribal raiders, who are referred to by historians as the Old Prussians and who were ethnically a baltic peoples who we must not confuse with the balto-finnic peoples who resided further north in the modern lands of estonia the old prussians occupied the lands around the vistula lagoon which if you remember was the area where the romans identified a tribe called the aesti who some suggest could be ancestral to the modern estonians Teutonic victories over old Prussian tribes allowed the Teutons something that was denied to them in Hungary, the beginnings of their own nation state. The Sword Brothers in Livonia were now struggling to keep their heads above water, feeling the financial pinch and bickering among themselves, the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy about their next move. After a devastating defeat to a coalition of local tribes in the north of the modern country of Lithuania in 1236, it was up to the state of the Teutonic Order to step in and rescue the crumbling state of the Sword Brothers. The new branch of the state of the Teutonic Order was geographically separate from their homelands in Poland, and so the amalgamation of the Teutons and the Sword Brothers would be known as the Livonian Order. The Novgorod Republic. The establishment of the Novgorod Republic takes us on a journey back in time to when we discussed the Kievan Rus in a dedicated episode earlier in the medieval volume. The far northwest of modern Russia is where the modern cities of St. Petersburg near the Gulf of Finland and Veliki Novgorod. Near Lake Eelman can be found, and these territories were disputed by Eastern Slavic and Balto Finnic tribes in the first millennium. We are now referring to the territories to the east of Lake Papus, as opposed to the west where the Livonian order developed. During the Age of the Vikings, Scandinavians ventured east from their homelands and explored the waterways of the Baltic Sea which inevitably brought them into the areas surrounding Lake Papus. These Vikings would explore the land southwards from these waterways where they would generally find tribal populations before they would reach the northern extremities of the Byzantine Empire. The discovery of the Byzantines opened up an opportunity for the Vikings who would trade captured Slavs for precious objects from the Byzantine Empire and their neighbours, which would increase their wealth. The Byzantines would call these Vikings the Varangians. One way or another the Varangians would establish a rule over the helpless East Slavic tribes and establish a capital city at Veliki Novgorod. The new nation is referred to as the Rus. And although the elite class were the Varangians, the nation state was overwhelmingly Eastern Slavic in its ethnicity and this would be the spoken language of the population and would eventually prosper as the official language of the successor states in opposition to the Scandinavian culture and language which represented the elite classes. The influence of the Reus state expanded as the nation became wealthier through trade and it would expand southwards to incorporate the lands around the city of Kiev, and become more sedentary and agricultural. Vladimir the Great was the Prince of Novgorod before becoming the Grand Prince of Kiev, based at the capital city of Kiev, which had been selected in favour of Novgorod shortly after its conquest Vladimir converted the Rus to Eastern Orthodox Christianity, seemingly because it seemed the most politically advantageous religion to the Rus, drawing it closer to its favoured trade partner, the Byzantines. With the Slavic language being the dominant language of the population, the translation of Christian documents into the evolving Cyrillic script was a convenience and would therefore become the alphabet of choice, for the evolving nations in this area of Europe. The reign of Yaroslav the Wise during the 11th century saw Kievan Rus develop political ties through marriage alliances with other European nations. But the problems for Kievan Rus came from within. Civil conflict between the descendants of Yaroslav and the different political areas of the vast Kievan Rus territory threatened to break the nation apart. Northern Kievan was governed from Veliki Novgorod, and the Novgorodians had expanded their influence in the north of the continent. This meant that they believed in themselves enough to believe that they could govern themselves and no longer be accountable to Kiev. In 1136, the Novgorodians dismissed the Prince Vsevolod which effectively demonstrated that the Novgorodians were in control of their own politics and no longer interested in Kievan-approved rulers or being obliged to pay a tribute to Kiev. So this year is recognised by historians as being the birth of the independent Novgorod Republic. Herman of Dorpat The bishopric of Dorpat was on the western banks of Lake Papus, based at the city of Dorpat, which is now the modern Estonian city of Tartu. The Livonian Brothers of the Sword took control of the site of what would become Dorpat Cathedral in 1224 and Hermann von Buxhoften was invited to be the bishop of the new Christian cathedral established there very soon afterwards. Little is known about Hermann von Buxhoften, but he may have been in lands controlled by the Sword Brothers before his appointment at Dorpat. This would be because his younger brother, Albert, was a fundamental part of the establishment of the Livonian Brothers of the Sword. Previous to the establishment of the Sword Brothers, Albert had been given the mission of leading a crusade as a part of the wider Livonian crusade in order to convert pagan Livonians and establish a Christian area of influence. We're not completely sure what part, if any, that Albert's brother Hermann played in this crusade. The two brothers were of noble stock belonging to the Buxhovden family whose village of origin was in Lower Saxony. Hermann would be the one to lead the army at the battle on the ice. Alexander Alexander. To the east of the Novgorod Republic was the Duchy of Vladimir, which in itself was a strong part of the Kievan Rus nation. In 1169, the Duchy of Vladimir was at the head of a Rus coalition that targeted the city of Kiev as part of the ongoing civil unrest in Kiev and Rus. This further demonstrated the cultural disparity between the different areas of Kievan and Rus and further to that the Northern Territories which ultimately formed the nucleus of what would become the modern country of Russia. Alexander Renevsky was a son of Yaroslav vyevolodovich and he was born in 1221 by Yaroslav's third wife, Theodosia. Igorievna of Ryazan. Yaroslav would be a very important figure in Novgorod after Alexandra's birth, so, if Alexandra was destined for leadership, he would have had a very strong teacher in his father. Yaroslav would successfully encroach on the territories of Estonia, Finland, and Karelia, as well as battling successfully against the Lithuanians and the Teutonic Order. In 1236, Yaroslav would travel south to Kiev, leaving his teenage son, Alexander to take over as the Prince of Novgorod. At this point in history, the Mongols had expanded westwards along the steppe from the Far East at an alarming rate, causing all of the European societies to brace themselves for invasion. Alexandra would use diplomatic means to strike a deal with the Mongols, where he would avoid Novgorod invasion by paying the Mongols a healthy tribute. The Novgorod Republic would soon come under attack from the Swedes, and Alexandra would score a famous victory against them at the Battle of the Neva in 1240. So revered was the victory that Alexandra would take his name, Nevsky. Directly from this battle is a testament to his victory. Prelude to the Battle Alexander Nevsky's victory over the Swedes was not popular with everyone in Novgorod. Members of the nobility, who were called the Boyars, feared for their fortunes and expelled Alexander Nevsky from Novgorod. It does seem like the Livonian Order the remnants of the Sword Brothers and their Teutonic Knight allies, took advantage of the opportunity to grab some Novgorodian territory. This alarmed the Novgorodians and they recalled Alexander Nevsky to defend the Republic from the highly threatening Livonian Order. When Alexander Nevsky returned, he hanged his political opponents before planning a military offensive against the Order. Alexandra's army would successfully push the Livonian Order backwards from their gained territory in the Novgorod Republic. The Livonian Order would retreat back behind Lake Papus and the Livonian threat was eliminated for the time being. Alexander Nevsky was not interested in giving up the fight and so he approached Lake Papus at the point where it narrows at the waterway known as the Lamiyarve. This waterway was frozen as it was the start of April, so it could actually be crossed if necessary. The army of the Livonian Order on the Estonian side of the Lamijarv was headed by the Bishop of Dorpat, Hermann von Buxhoften, who despite being a bishop was also a very capable diplomatic and military leader. Hermann's drawback was that his army was fewer in numbers than that of Alexander Nevsky, possibly only half the size. He did have a contingent of Teutonic knights on his side, some of the most highly respected horsemen in all of Europe. His opposite number was the also highly capable military leader, Alexander Nevsky. The most notable difference between the two leaders was their difference in age. Alexandra was not even 21 years of age, but Hermann, on the other hand, was almost 80 years of age. Alexandra was protected by a personal bodyguard called the Druzhina, well equipped and honed for military action. Both sides had a good percentage of cavalry among their ranks, but as mentioned previously, the actual numbers favoured the Novgorodians. The Battle on the Ice. The date of the battle was the 5th of April 1242, and we have to be extremely careful about how we tell this story. Much of the information is written retrospectively by future historians, and it is likely that details have been embellished or altered to cast a different perspective on the nature of the battle. Alexandra stood back on the eastern banks of the frozen Lamia. Looking to entice the Livonian Order into an attack. The attack came from the Livonian centre and their trusted Teutonic knights. They would make their way across the ice in what is described as a wedge formation. They were followed by a collection of native Estonian and Livonian tribespeople alongside a contingent of Danes who themselves had control of the northern coastal lands of Estonia and no interest in surrendering it to the Eastern Orthodox Novgorodians. Russian accounts of the battle can be found in the medieval literary works called the Novgorod First Chronicle and The Life of Alexandrinevsky. In essence, the descriptions of these works iterate the fact that the Teutonic Knights were targeting Alexandrinevsky himself. While the Novgorodians attempted to hide much of their military from the view of the Teutons in order to launch a surprise counterattack. The Teutons were going to have their work cut out to get their hands on Alexander Nevsky in any case, as he was under the personal guard of the Druzhina, as mentioned before. The Danes may have been on the left flank of the advancing Livonian order, and they were very suddenly under the attack of specialist steppe archers. It is reported that the Estonians at the rear were having second thoughts about getting too close to the danger and their lack of support for their Danish comrades gave the Danes no option but to retreat. This left the Teutonic Knights with only their German infantry for support and with such superior numbers in the first place, the Novgorodians, would have little issue with advancing towards the Teutons and outflanking them. The Teutons knew that the only option for them was to retreat, but it was difficult to do this at speed on the surface of a frozen lake. The more skilled Teutonic knights were able to escape the situation, but much of the German infantry perished. The Novgorodians may have pursued the remnants of the Livonian Order back across the ice. But it does seem that the battle on the ice was a dominant victory for the Novgorod Republic. Aftermath As mentioned, Russian chronicles report details about the battle on the ice. But interestingly, another piece of literature called the Livonian Rhymed Chronicle written in German, describes the Novgorodians' losses as high, with few Livonian losses, which suggests that this battle wasn't quite as one-sided as it appears. We may never know the real truth, but we can be confident of this being a victory for Novgorod. The two leaders, Hermann of Dorpat and Alexander Nevsky, appeared to have survived this battle unscathed. Hermann, as we know was quite elderly and lived for just six years after the battle's conclusion. Much as the battle would effectively cement the eastern border of Western Catholicism against the western border of Eastern Orthodoxy, Alexander Nevsky had a bigger issue to deal with. Militarily, he could handle the attempted invasions of the Scandinavians, the Balto Finnic tribes and the Baltic tribes of Lithuania and the Teutonic Order. Its biggest issue was the presence of the Mongols in the east and Alexander Renievsky would have to spend a lot of time finding a balance between maintaining a diplomatic relationship with the Mongols without surrendering any more of the Novgorod Republic than he had to. After the death of Alexander Renievsky in 1263, the Novgorodians very quickly realised what they had lost. Alexander Renievsky was the constant that the Novgorodians could believe in when the Republic was under pressure, but without him, the Novgorod Republic would begin to fragment. The Russian Orthodox Church canonised him in the 16th century, so now he can be referred to as a saint. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Battle on the Ice. Uh, a, a quite a unique battle and, and very much steeped in folklore, especially in uh, in Russian historical folklore. This is a, a very uh, important battle, as uh, is the warlord Alexander and Nevsky. Um, also, uh, it introduces to us the Teutonic Knights, and we're going to continue the story of the Teutonic Knights in the next episode about the Battle of Grunwald. So um, make sure that you uh, tune in. But we're we're actually not going to do the Battle of Grunwald next week. We have reached um, the end of the Ancient World Cup. And uh, as such, um, we're heading into the final match. So we're going to do a special episode about the Ancient World Cup final uh, next week. We already know one of the participants, but who is the other? The Ancient World Cup. We started off with 64 teams, and through a process of voting, we're now down to the last three teams, Uh, which means that we already know one of the finalists, the Ancient Egyptians. But who will their opponents be now? In the last week, we've been voting on the second semi-final. We've been using the Facebook page for the History of the World podcast, the unofficial Facebook fan group, Uh, for the History of the World podcast. We've been using Twitter and Instagram to uh, collate your votes. The two semi-finalists are the Romans and the Athenians. Now, the Romans, um, you know, there's not a lot more that we can say about the Romans other than there was, you know, a real thousand-year dominance of European politics. Um, But they may not have had the, uh, the political structure um, that they had uh, without the model of the Athenians in ancient Greece to uh, to sort of set an example for them. So the Athenians, in their own right, probably played a part in the Romans being um, as important as they were. So the votes came in, they were counted. Thank you very much for 79 of you who voted. Um, but I can say that advancing through to the final against the ancient Egyptians with sixty-nine percent of the votes uh were the Romans. Uh it was almost predictable and like, you know, some of us may have hoped that um there could have possibly been an upset. But I think many people predicted that the ancient Egyptians and the Romans would be the natural final to this tournament. And just through sheer luck really, they got drawn on opposite sides of the draw to each other. Um, It was somewhat of a computer-generated draw, I have to admit, so there was no sort of bias involved in this. Uh, But I think it worked out just right, really. So the final of the Ancient World Cup uh, is the Ancient Egyptians uh, versus the Romans. And next week, we're going to have a special preview episode of the podcast for the final. So voting won't take place this week. It will take place next week. But I really need your help, Hot Worlders, uh, to compile this episode next week um, so what i'm looking for from all of you is to write and tell me who you will be voting for uh, and why so you can do that in a number of ways you can email in um, to the history of the world podcast at mail.com um, email address you can um, you can go on the discussion forum at tappertalk.com Um, and uh, put your opinion across there. You can go to the Facebook page. You can write me a a message on Twitter. Um, Any way that you can get in touch with the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. What I would really like more than anything is if anyone can send their voice messages in um, so that they can be broadcast during next week's episode. Um, Would you please... Uh, help to influence the result by giving a good argument for who you want to win, the ancient Egyptians or the Romans, who deserves it the most. And can you convince other hot worlders to think about this your way? So really looking for your help here. I'm, I'm hoping that you're all getting involved and, and make this a really exciting episode to listen to next week. Once that episode has been published, then we'll roll out the voting. Um, and uh, we'll see who, after all this time, will be the ancient World Cup champions. Listener messages and reviews. Now, if you like the podcast and you would like to support the podcast, uh, you can. Uh, the easiest way to do it is to go to the History historyoftheworldpodcast.com website where you can find all sorts of great links and um, you will be able to click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution, which will really help me to uh, keep the quality of the podcast as, as good as possible. Uh, it will allow me to uh, uh, to invest in equipment and materials uh, that can really make this um, one of the best podcasts out there. So um, do consider making a monthly contribution, especially if you enjoy the podcast. Remember, you, you get to listen free of charge. Um, so it's, you know, it would be a nice thing to do to sort of add something into this production and make it something that we all do together. Um, we welcome in, uh, to the, uh, to the history of the world podcast, Illuminati, which is that exclusive club for anyone who makes a a financial contribution towards the podcast. Uh, we welcome in Nathan Condela. Uh thank you very much Nathan and welcome to the History of the World podcast the Illuminati. Uh you will receive gifts and bonuses and opportunities um as you go along as your monthly contributions accrue and uh that applies to everyone who is a History of the World podcast the Illuminati member. Just keep an eye on your email inbox and you'll be notified of when you qualify for these uh exclusive rewards. So uh, thank you very much. Um, over to the uh, emails that we've received this week. Hal Ozan has written in and put, uh, Chris just discovered your podcast. I'm obsessed. It's all I listen to. And my girlfriend wants to strangle me in my sleep. Uh, you're brilliant. Never stop and never change. PS, just read your About Me and discovered that you're an Essex boy like myself, as if I couldn't love you any more. Yes, we're we're the best, us Essex boys, of course. Um, But thank you very much, Hal, for writing in a very kind message. And a long-time friend of the podcast and uh, History of the World podcast, Illuminati member, Lynn Dowling, has written in and put, loved the unscripted review of the last four years on this date. Again, I think most hot worlders appreciate your review episodes. If I'm not mistaken, the looping back to previous subject matter is a proven aid to learning, and that's what we are after, in addition to the great entertainment we get at the same time. Lynn from San Diego. Thanks, Lynn. It it really does mean a lot when... um, people do um let me know uh what they appreciated and it, and it helps me to direct the podcast in the right direction so um i really do appreciate that feedback Lynn. and if anyone wants to give any kind of feedback to the show um it's great for me to uh, listen to what you think and, and what you want so don't hesitate if you've got something to say um feel free come out and say it um, we got a great review this week uh, from Rachie Tabb, who has written in and, and put Stop Wasting Your Life and Start Listening to This Podcast. I Can't Get Enough. Chris is humble, fair, and comes across as very kind and genial. His voice is great and he has a charming accent. The research he does for the podcast is fantastic. The narrative he writes is interesting and easy to follow. I listen to every episode multiple times because I love to fall asleep to it, but I always want to listen again with my full attention later. I came to the podcast looking for prehistory and I'm so grateful you started there. Learning in a comprehensive chronological way adds a lot to the content for me and it's such a rare find. I'm learning so much and it's a great bonus and it's comforting to listen to. Thanks Chris and hello from Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. Uh, well thank you very much Rachie tabbot it's an extremely uh kind review really a complimentary and kind review so always you say i'm humble but it's, it's you guys that humble me really more than anyone by writing such uh, such complimentary reviews i think uh quite um quite amazing and uh thank you so much. Anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we've got a special episode on the final of the Ancient World Cup. We're going to take a closer look at uh, some of the finalists. We're going to be reading out your opinions about who should win the final. And we're going to be playing your voice messages. Now, I'm going to put it out there. I, I am guessing that nobody will send me a voice message. Um, so I wonder if anyone's going to prove me wrong but uh, we'll, we'll see we'll see next week and then the week after that we're going to continue the story of the Teutonic Knights and find out exactly what happened to them um, after the events of the Battle on the Ice which was this week's episode so uh, uh, two episodes to really look forward to in the next two weeks so until then thanks for listening and be good The History of the World Podcast written and presented by Chris Hensler please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.